Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hello, listeners. I'm Adam Hawkins, and this week I am joined by special guest, Pastor Kyle Worley. I think if we look at the last few years uh, leading up to now um, and, and maybe survey the state of the church, if we look at what people are writing and saying kind of on a national level, um, even within our own tribe, if you want to call it that, it seems like the church is at this pivotal moment or a moment of change, a moment of upheaval. And I don't think you have to go far. You know, Barna's releasing studies about the division in the church, about young people flocking away from the church. If you look at what's captured the headlines around church in, in general, uh, you have things like its recent sort of uh, forays into politics. Uh, you, you know, you have the political strife, you have racial strife, um, you have these questions that the church is trying to answer whether they stand with sociological positions on race or not. And then you have recent failures like the abuse scandal, uh, church two movements. And what that's, what's happened with that is you kind of have this sense of people asking, where are we and where are we going? Um, And so what we want to do is we want to take the next few episodes and ask specific questions around where is the church and where do we think it's going. So I hope you enjoy that. Today we're focusing on denominations uh, slash institutions, but really looking at denominations, and I think it's going to be really helpful. All right, before we jump in on the future of the church and denominations, I want to introduce Kyle, or rather let him introduce himself. So Kyle, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Kyle, and I get the privilege of serving as a pastor at Mosaic Church in Richardson, Texas. We're a sister church to Citizens Church here in Plano. And uh, delighted to be here. I uh, also have the privilege of uh, serving as an executive producer and host for another podcast called Knowing Faith. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Uh, and for those, um, I'm just going to fill in a little bit more. Kyle is probably probably the smartest person I know, um, and he is just uh, a wonderful pastor. Uh, m- many of our people uh, went to Mosaic and helped plant that church. And so, if you're in Richardson and looking for a good gospel believing, uh, you know, community rooted church, you should go to Mosaic. And if you don't listen to Knowing Faith, uh, and you listen to Culture Matters, maybe just go listen to No Faith. <laughs> no, no, so, um, but it is a wonderful <laughs> podcast, and uh, Kyle is just such a wonderful host of that. So I'm going to be leaning on him heavily today. So um, thank you again, Kyle, oh, for taking I'm excited time. to talk about this. You know how I feel about this conversation. Yes, yes. So. Kyle and I kind of off mic have had many conversations about this as we've just kind of said, hey, what's up with our denomination, which is we've both of our churches have been associated with the SBC, and we're kind of saying, you know, what's the landscape of the SBC, where we're going. But I think before we can have the conversation where we're going, I think we need to talk about how we got here. And so maybe, you know, we don't have to go all the way back to the foundation (laughs) of the church. Uh, uh, But what what are the origins, Kyle, of denominations, or at least modern denominations yeah. in their modern forms? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we may not need to go all the way back, but to talk about denominations in their modern form, we'd have to go back at least to the Reformation. Right. Um, because prior to the Reformation, you have the 
Catholic church and you have sex, um, sex, S-E-C-T-S, my Southeast Texas accent (laughs) does not help me with that one. (laughs) Um, You have little like subgroups within the Roman Catholic church. Right. uh, Little like orders, basically. Okay. um, Or deviations of that, schisms. But it's at the Reformation where you can really trace the lineage to denominations in their modern form. So, you know, you have Martin Luther, certainly, who's a a principal figure of the Reformation, um, certainly a fire starter of the Reformation, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. And from Luther's initial project of trying to reform the church, which keep in mind, Luther was very self-aware about not wanting to create a new tradition, a new religious order. He certainly did not envision the kind of denominations that would spiral from the Reformation. That was totally outside of both his intent and uh, probably his imagination. (laughs) Um, But uh, from uh, Luther's kind of you know, kicking off the Reformation, you you do have the the historical roots of most what we would call like Protestant or sometimes called free church denominations. Right. So basically every mainline tradition, by mainline we would mean like Episcopal, Presbyterian, Methodist tradition, Anglican, uh, those would be kind of your big mainline traditions. Those traditions can all trace their lineage back to Luther. Yeah. And the Reformation. And so from the very beginning, um, after Luther kind of his project of trying to reform the uh, the Roman Catholic Church, after it was made clear that the Roman Catholic Church was not interested in a large-scale reformation of right. their, their religious project or their religious order— uh, the Lutheran Church begins in Germany, but from there you have the Reformed Church. Right. Uh, all, a lot of this is happening on the continent of Europe, right. Central and Western Europe. Right. And it begins to migrate west to uh, what we know as Great Britain, the the British Isles, and so your earliest kind of religious denominations outside of the Western and Eastern split, right. which happened much, much, much earlier, which we can get to if we want. But uh, a lot of your Denominations in America, that's probably the principal audience you have here. Right. Every denomination in America, excepting uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, can trace their lineage back to the Reformation. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting, and you pointed out, but it's an irony that many of us don't probably understand or we just haven't thought about, but that Luther really wasn't trying to create denominations, right? No, I think Uh, he'd be pretty despondent about what happened on the long tail of his project. Right. Like, I I don't think he would be very happy with the current situation of, of, you know, Baskin-Robbins denominationalism. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, let's talk about that just for a second, this idea of Baskin-Robbins denomination. There's ways to talk about denominations. This is a really big conversation where it's like, there's a lot of critiques Uh around denominationalism about it's birthing, in some ways, the kind of secular mind, uh, mm-hmm. at least as we know it today. And again, these are ironies that sometimes within our own um, uh, denominations or even within the, the own our own kind of Protestant intellectual history, these kind of questions don't pop up as much. Yeah. You, you hear from the outside, whether it be Catholics or sort of ex- you know, Protestants or something, you'll, you, there's been a lot maybe written about that uh, from the outside. It's starting to be, and probably for a while has been written, written about from the inside, but there is a way to kind of look at denominations in a positive light. Sure. uh, And there's a way to look at denominations in a negative light. Um, Are denominations 
do they have their own sort of American story or American yeah. flavor? Do you sure, know what I mean? Absolutely. There's the continental flavor. It's yep. strange. There's these histories of state churches. Yep. There's histories of yep. wars that last yeah. forever. Sure. And just, it has its own flavor on the continent. Absolutely. The reason they're spawning for them sometimes are geopolitical. Sure. Yep. Sometimes are uh, splits over doctrine, yep. right? And then in America, it, there's a strange sense. There's even kind of new religious cults and Mormonism and, oh, yeah. you know, all these crazy things happening. So if you were to look at America and say why or how is the story of denominations bound up with America, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, there's been, uh, I mean, there is like, uh, religious historians in America have lots to work with. <laughs> yeah. Um, because like everything, America wants to put its very like unique idiosyncratic fingerprint on everything <laughs> sure. and religion certainly has been there. Um, so yeah, you, you may, you, you, you bring a good point, which is that every kind of social context begins to form, uh, for good or for bad, uh, the religious expressions within it. Right. So, you know, it's not surprising to find that Luther's church, the Lutheran church right after the reformation is still functioning like a state church. Right. I mean, very like to basically to be baptized into the Lutheran Church was to be counted as a German citizen. Right. So, like, that is a... Can you imagine a world in America where it's like your citizenship would be contingent on your baptism? Crazy. That's different. Okay? For us, yeah, oh, that's a crazy thought. Yeah, it's yeah. just wild. Yeah. Um, but when we think about how uh, American religious life mutated, it's incredibly important to realize that it mutated in much the same way that our other institutions have, yeah. meaning that it was started uh, with a kind of religious freedom. You know, we think about American history oftentimes as a lot of the first settlers are coming here for religious freedom, for Protestant expression, right. um, outside of the strictures of the what had become the Church of England. Right. Um, and the Church of England was becoming, uh, and it kind of went and it kind of ebbed and flowed. But at the time in which America is being settled, many of its settlers uh, are, are British exiles looking for religious freedom. They, they can't be, they can't practice their free church religion in England unimpeded. And many of them were persecuted significantly for it. Mm. And so when they get here, they are coming here for, within like an already independent mindset. Like, I think a lot of times we think about individualism as some sort of American ideology that shaped religious expression. That's wrong. Wow. Individualism is a fruit of religious expression in America. Wow. People leaving, uh, you know, the the Church of England saying, "We, I want to practice my religion unimpeded and freely." Right. So we'll go over here and do that. I mean, that's whether it's a good impulse or a bad. It is an individualistic impulse. Yeah. And so they get here, and I don't think we can separate. Uh, the radical individualism that we often talk about with America right. from the religious roots of America, the way that the expression came to be from the very beginning. And that has shaped denominational life. Yeah, Basically, if you're a group of people who expressed dissent to such a degree that you left your home country to go to a completely foreign place to practice religion, then is it any wonder that through America, anytime there has been some sort of discomfort from people within a religious structure, they've said, well, we'll just go create a new one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. over and over again, yep. it's baked into the soil. Yeah. So I do think that is unique, not uniquely American, but it is certainly American. Yeah. That individualistic impulse that says okay, uh, we think differently about this. I'm out of here. Yeah. And we're going to go do this. Yeah. We're going to go start a new tradition. And that it's interesting because probably as that's happening in real time, there is a way that that is very, um, 
like you said, separatist. Oh yeah. But what it did or could mean in a in a positive light is a multicultural sure. system or a system that breeds pluralism in a sense. Yeah. To say, hey, we're not gonna associate with you anymore, but also like we're the next village over and we yeah. still need to like trade and oh, etc. Yeah. So there's so many what's what's interesting about this to to your point is even even statehood, right? So you have these charters of certain states uh, um, you know the 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 original states, the original colonies. Sure. Some of those are actually people are state sponsored. Yes. church kind of sure. like we want the Church of England here, or we want this expression here. So it is all bound up in a really in a really um in a way that you can't untangle. It's all bound up the the idea of denominations with America. Absolutely, and nowhere else in the world have denominations proliferated like they have in America. Right. Yeah. I mean, like that is. You're not going to go. You will find denominational expressionism in other countries and in other continents. That is absolutely true. You'll find unique churches, but one of the greatest religious exports of America is denominationalism. Yes, you're not like these things were not homegrown in Norway. Yeah, like yeah. like if you find a Baptist church in Norway, yeah, it probably was planted or sent right by an American Baptist organization, right. very likely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's another interesting point. Like, if you go to Great Britain today, yeah, are there other denominations sure. present? Sure. But for the most part, it's either the Catholic Church there or Church of England, yep. right? I mean, that's that's pretty much, if it's a if it's an indigenous expression, exactly. right? Um, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting point, but at, to, to move the story further along. So you have, from its inception in America, several denominations um, you know, even several new religious expressions sure. that pop up, some die, some continue, et yep. cetera. But if you were to look at our modern form, so you talked about the big mainline churches. Mm-hmm. You have Methodism, you have Anglicanism, which are Episcopalian, yep. which is Church of England, but sure. we're not in England. Yep. <laughs> so yep. they had to call it something else. Yep. Um, uh, Presbyterian, and I'm probably, what am I leaving out? Those would be the big three. Those are the big three. And then you have this Anabaptist thing, uh-huh. uh, which we can talk about a little bit. And then even more modern expressions, like I grew up going to a church called Church of Christ, right? And that's mm-hmm. an interesting thing from these dudes in Kentucky who were like, uh, we think we're the first century church and the yep. only true expression. Yep. And so now we're calling ourselves something, and that spawns its own deal. So what are, where are we now? If you were to kind of take the big denominations... Uh, and then maybe describe the birth of non-denominationalism a little bit. So, how do look Baptists? What are Baptists, and how to? Because I think I, you know, Southern Baptist is the largest denomination in America, is it not? It's the largest evan- evangelical denomination in the world. In the world, okay. So I think it's important to talk about that. Yep. Uh, and then I think um, so we talk about that a little bit, and then talk about maybe a birth of Congregationalism or even non-denomination. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when. When the colonies are being formed and religious expressionism is kind of being, oh, tested and tried out, you have a guy who shows up named Roger Williams. And Roger Williams can really be charted as the first – he's like the 
progenitor of Baptist life in America. Okay. He's like the beginning point. Okay. okay. There were other Baptists probably at this sure. point because Baptists were already present in the on the continent with the Anabaptist tradition and in the UK with what we call general and particular Baptists. Right. So uh, you'll often hear some Baptists talk about the first and second London confession. Yeah. Those were expressions of Baptist life in the UK. Yeah. So some Baptists were coming over in the settling of America and Roger Williams establishes himself both as like like the founder of Rhode Island and the <laughs> basically the founder of the American Baptist Church. That's the first Baptist Church of America. You can still go see it in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and uh, it's fascinating to yeah. go see. Um, and uh, if you live in Dallas, the, the, the chapel at DBU is actually a, a, a shot for shot remake of the first Baptist church. I did not know But that. blown up by like a thousand. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's Texas, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so... Uh, Anyways, so Roger Williams kind of founds the Baptist Church in America. It, it definitely is he crucial to Roger Williams' belief in the Baptist Church is this idea of religious liberty or separation of church and state. That's now, which is funny to think that that was integral to the Baptist vision. I think many Baptists now would say, no, we don't want there to be any separation right. of church and right. state. But for Roger Williams, it was a huge core conviction was that the state should not be governing religious freedom and religious expression. And so as Baptist life kind of mutates across the colonies, it begins to take shape in a way that was similar to its UK expression, meaning that there were pr there was presence of both general and particular Baptists. And if you're looking for like the quickest shorthand on the difference between these two, general Baptists were, uh, they were non-Calvinistic in their doctrine. Particular Baptists were Calvinistic in their doctrine. That's the easiest way. Now there's a lot more differences. Sure. The general Baptist church, both in the UK and America, will go on to become the Unitarian church. Yes. Particular Baptists will go on to become the foundation of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is formed in 1845. Right. The Southern Baptist Convention is formed not for good reasons. Right. That's important. The separation between Baptists in America, 1845, is a cliff moment, and the cliff there is all centered around slavery. Mm -hmm. And so this is at the bedrock of Southern Baptist Convention, and the Southern Baptists over the last you know, century and a half have had many times where they have publicly tried to reckon with this. Mm -hmm. Really in the last, I say in the century and a half, they really started trying to reckon with it in the uh, mid 20th century, like right. 1950s. And that crescendoed in 2000, and there was a bunch of statements that were put out. But the fact remains, the Southern Baptist Convention began very tied, like most things in America at in 1845 to the issue of slavery yeah, and whether or not slaveholders could send missionaries, which just let that fry your brain for right. a second. Um, whether slaveholders could be missionaries, whether they could send missionaries over the funding yeah. that could come for these things. And so it, it was a, like a lot of things in America at the time and a lot of things that have, uh, in America uh, in the time in the South, the Southern Baptist Convention was integrally tied to the issue of slavery and the economics of that issue. And so when we think about the free church tradition, there are a lot of other free church traditions right. that are spreading at the same time. Right. Lots of forms of congregationalism. Right. So you're going to get the roots of free church Methodism. Yep. So this is non-mainline forms of Methodism. Mm -hmm. You're going to get the roots of... Um, 
uh, uh, what we might call free church expressions of Anglicanism, which will come over as Congregationalism right. or, congregate, or independent churches. Right. Um, and so, I mean, like a very notable independent Congregationalist minister of the early Americas would be somebody like Jonathan Edwards. Right. A very notable free church-minded evangelical, as we would use the term now, um, Methodist would be somebody like John Wesley. Right. Right. Um, so George Whitfield would mm. be another expression of this. And so there's a lot of religious impulses that are at play. You've got this undercurrent of deism that is significant in the founding of America. Right. You've got this spreading wildfire of non mainline denominations. D- this, by non mainline, I mean denominations that do not have large scale external hierarchies of right. governance. Right. They might have regional or even national, but they don't go all the way back. Right. And so because of this, that kind of religious life creates some real opportunities in the Americas. Right. And some real obstacles. Right. Because we're not all speaking the same language any longer. Right. Right. Even about, you mean in particular about our faith. Yes, absolutely. About things that are really important. Um, And this is is something that's interesting. So... Um, for a long time to try to help move the story forward. And if I, if I gl- glance over anything, just tell me. But for a long time, um, some of these lines become really uh, uh, deep um, in terms of denominationalism in America, sure. right? Um, there's ebbs and flows even in the history of America in terms of how many people are really practicing Christians, right? right? You have the Great Awakenings sure. and yep. different things. But to move us forward, like I think it wouldn't be crazy to say that maybe 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50s, you are probably identifying by your denomination. Um, I'm a Methodist. Sure. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Southern Baptist. Yep. You know, I'm a whatever. And that might even be the circles you run in socially. That might be act as sort of a social lubricant in sure. some ways. It's how I'm getting my job. This is the yep. schools I'm going to. Sure. So even even as you have these denominations, they be they take on a life that's bigger than simply to your point, their their genesis. So you have the Southern Baptist Convention being birthed out of arguing whether slaveholders can uh, send missionaries. You have Methodists going back to the continent. You have all these kind of... But then something starts to happen as they build an institution yeah. and the things that are spawned from this. And, and I think you could argue that there are very... Um, positive, very positive things happening, sure. also negative. And sure. so I'm I'm referring to things like hospitals, schools, sure. on and on. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, w- well, let's just define what an institution is. Sure. Um, so, you know, gosh, uh, I would say that a, a, just a, a basic definition, we might say an, intro, uh, an institution is centralized collective action for disproportionate impact. Yeah. An institution is is built so that individuals can cooperate together to do more than they could do on their own. Right. And so, uh, yes, many of these denominations begin to form institutions. And they're, so some of the first institutions they form are institutions of higher learning. So if you go back and look at even like a lot of the foundation of your Ivy League schools, what you're going to find are religious orders, denominations, religious expressions, binding themselves together to form uh, institutes of higher learning, mostly to educate future pastors. Right. That was a principal place of, that was a principal origin story for a lot of our higher learning institutions in the colonies and that now have stuck around, you know, who have some legacy. But beyond that, yes, they begin to form, you know, 
they begin to form publishing houses, which is another big one. Yep. You got to spread the word. You got to you got to spread these pamphlets. And that was again, uh, you know, when you think about the origins of Protestantism, the idea of printing and printed word and publishing. I mean, that is tied into its story. So it's not surprising that they 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 are at the forefront of the publishing industry in America. Uh, beyond that. Uh, they are certainly, as years go by, they're certainly beginning to form houses of medical care, mm. right? A lot of those are more regional in nature to begin with, but as things grow and grow and grow, it becomes a bit of the status of a, how deeply has a religious denomination taken root in a given community can be kind of measured by whether or not there's a hospital that attends to it, right? Right, I mean, just look around, like just drive around the cities that you live in mm -hmm. and just do a little bit of etymology and word studies <laughs> on the names of them. And you're going to find out that your Methodist hospitals, well, They've got a great lineage with Methodism. Yeah. That your Baptist <laughs> hospitals, uh, surprise, surprise, Catholic hospitals, Catholic charities. Yeah. So a lot of the religious expression in the early Americas, and that we still have many of those institutions today, whether or not those institutions still have any fidelity right. to the convictions of their starters is a totally different question. Right. But the fact that they exist and that they're endowed is usually a result of a lot of religious charity over a long period of time yeah. for collective action. And so I think you have this, I think what you could say is you have sort of a solidifying of certain denominations. You have mm -hmm. this experiment happening, dissenting views happening, people forming things for various reasons, some oh, yeah. good, some negative. Then you have lines in the sand that get drawn. These, these institutions for many, for good reasons are... Um, or these denominations for good reasons are starting to institutionalize, they're gaining power, they're cooperating in ways to send missionaries to build communities sure. in some ways. Um, and sometimes uh, that is embedded in governmental structures, sometimes not. But then something happens. And I, so I want to, we, we've j basically touched very quickly on the rise of denominations as institutions. Sure. But then you have something that starts to happen. You talked about some of it. You have decoupling of some of the the arms of these denominations, like hospitals, from their founding. Like, you go to a Methodist hospital now, it may have nothing to do with sure. Methodist beliefs or not, yep. et cetera. Um, but why? You have a decline. And I'm sure you could measure that with secularism, but I think there's something else there. Um, and then I think, and then we'll move into sort of recent, recent history and talk about where we are now. So any, any, what, what's the beginning of the decline of denominations or, um, maybe decline of denominations as institutions? Yeah. So I don't know that I would say that there's been a decline of denominations, although certainly Good there point. is yep. a, like, cause we still, there's still a proliferation of right. Them. And whether we call them denominations now or networks or right. institutions or whatever, collectives, there's a lot of them. Right. Um, and uh, you basically need a cool V-neck and you can start a denomination <laughs> or a network now. So it's a, you know, you can have a social media denomination or network at this point. So it doesn't take much. But when we think about the large denominations in America. Yes. Those denominations have had peaks and valleys. They've ebbed and flowed. And certainly they are crescendoing. They're at their height in the mid 20th century. And the wars, specifically uh, the Great Depression, World War I, World War II, that season of America's life presents incredible opportunity, religious opportunity, because people are asking big questions. 
There's a lot that's happening. Yeah. There are a lot of needs and there's a lot of hurt. And because of that, religious organizations are, even if they're not growing deep, which this is a, a fair criticism of denominational life in America in the 20th century, they're growing wide right. and fast. Right. And I do think that a lot of our issues that we can kind of think about present day denominational life are birthed in the unrestricted growth broadly of denominational life in the 20th century. We just got so fast, so fat, honestly. Yeah. Denominational life was exploding in America. And because of that, there was very little depth. And we didn't deal, deal with any of the rotten things that were baked into the soil of denominational life. Mm. We just continued to grow these organizations quickly and fastly. Now, a lot of the institutions, you think about institutions of higher learning, like universities or hospitals, they also begin to break away in the 20th century from their founding vision or founding whatever. Right. The reason for that is because they take on the role of businesses. I, and I, this is not, listen, I'm I, I am not an economist, sure. nor do I have hard economic views, but <laughs> there is without a doubt that the, the uh, economic boom of late 19th century and mid 20th century American economic life, capitalism in particular, is certainly driving the, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you can't talk about the, the, uh, the way that hospitals presently exist without talking about the healthcare system in America. Right, of course. As much of a driver as, you know, the, the convictions of Methodism are right. in the way that those hospitals separated themselves, we begin to have a economic vision for what health would look like healthcare would look like in this country, hospitals had to start governing themselves accordingly. Right. You know? Right. So like, it'd be impossible to talk about the reason that uh, religiously founded hospitals operate the way they do now. Right. Without talking about like private insurance. Exactly. You know? So right. like that would, you couldn't even have the conversation. The same would hold for universities. Universities became revenue generators. Right. They became profit makers. Right. So if you're a profit maker now, then you're going to do what's profitable for you. Right. You know? Um, and so uh, these universities begin to realize, hey, with the free access to public education, there's a greater market for higher learning than just pastors. Shouldn't we be training more people? As there's greater job specialization in the new world and the Americas, we got to offer more things. So we offer more things. We're now in competition with other universities that are offering a range of services and a range of degree options. Well, okay, well, we got to be more competitive than they are. So I don't know that I could say there is a religious reason or a denominational reason why many of these institutions right. break rank, so to speak. Right. But I think there are many economic drivers for why that happened. So we find ourselves in a present day situation where we are in a, like, America and Americans, they live in a, in a world, in a country where there are all of these like uh, institutional things they can lean on mm -hmm. that are merely the relics right. of, a, of a religious period in America's life, of a season of denominational life. And so oftentimes we're kind of walking through the, the remnants, right. totally unaware that many of the institutions that we walk among uh, were built by religious forces. It's it that's a fascinating point because I think it actually goes really well with the idea of a secularizing West in general. So much of the intellectual institutions, and by that I just mean the intellectual ideas we lean on, sure. are relics yep. and hollowed out relics of 
of Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. Ideas like human rights, ideas like good and evil and how those expressions find themselves now. It's, I want the kingdom without the king kind of an idea. And I I think you, so you're seeing that. You walk into this hospital, giant hospital, it's got a name attached to it, but it's no longer really, there's nothing about it, right? Same with the big Ivy Leagues, et cetera. So it's it's an interesting irony of our our age. Um, Yeah. And and I think many of us are kind of unaware of that. Sure, uh, and even the even the institutions that still have retained some sort of religious profile, mm-hmm. like like just think about Baylor University. Right. How many people nationally know Baylor University as a oh this was a university that was religiously founded, right? That had religious motivations. Yeah. No. And and the school itself isn't interested in like cultivating that image. No. It's no longer a form of currency. Right. This is an indictment on Baylor. Like yeah, sick sure. of beers. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 Go for, I'm it. for you. Go for it. But it's just an example right. that there are many, many, many organizations, some of which we just take for granted now, that have religious foundations, or at least their inception is tied to some sort of religious expression uh, or religious leader um, that at this point you know, are f- fairly segmented away from that origin. I want to talk really quickly here about a Christian Standard Bible, and you can get more information about it at csbible.com. The CSB is a relatively new Bible translation, and it is really great. The translation itself is solid. It still takes a pretty literal approach to translating the original language. At the same time, though, it's far more accessible and enjoyable to read than the many other literal translations you've probably read. A great example is John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We're excited to be partnering with the Christian Standard Bible. Check it out at csbible.com. So here's what we're saying. We have sort of, you can't dislocate the the fact that capitalism is an engine, right? And it has an effect on um, denominations or at least the, the those arms that sort of reach into society in different ways, yep. whether that's education, whether that's, um, you know, hospitals, publishing houses, all those things we just talked about. Um, so maybe there's an erosion or maybe there is something happening on that front. Then you have a secularizing world that's happening. Um, you have a West that's sort of, especially, you know, 50s, 60s, um, you have some, you have something start to happen there, uh, social erosion, etc. You have what you just talked about of denominations failing to mm-hmm. reckon with their past. And then you have this strange thing that happens, like you talked, you mentioned earlier, you have certain denominations, not all, but denominations like the SBC, uh, Baptists who who talked about separation of church and state, and then you have this strange thing where it's these institutions, denominations, trying to kind of get in bed with power. Sure, yeah. And so I, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is like, where do we find ourselves today? Um, I think you can't tell that story without talking about things like moral majority or some of these things that happen. So um, let's talk about that for just a minute. Um, You know, what does it mean when you have this idea in America that we're not going to have state churches, and then you have this strange thing happen where you don't have state churches, but you almost have party churches, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And what, what do you think the effect of that is? What is that? What is that phenomenon? And then what do you think the effect is? Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> in, in like two minutes. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Um, 
maybe if I could just like take a step back. Good. Uh, from the beginning of the church, and I mean by the beginning of like the institutional church, so you uh, the what we might call the post New Testament church, right? Um, there begins to be a question of how will Christians relate and organize around the strictures or privileges that their social, ethnic, geographical, and political context allows for, um, and they begin to try to create. Um, and cultivate the church around those realities. So in the early church, uh, there is incredible persecution. You're getting a sense of this in the New Testament, but it certainly extends, uh, particularly under the Roman Empire, but throughout the world, they're facing all kinds of persecution. But there there comes a moment where the Christian witness has grown in, in, to such a degree that now the social and political powers at play have to reckon with their presence in the um in their civilization. Uh, now, I, I want to say just one note here. Uh, Tom Holland has written a book called Dominion. So good. That is exceptional. And what I'm about to do is like a hatchet job <laughs> on uh, what is a deep civilizational history. But I think it's important to bring us to our present day, and I think I can do it quick. Good. So early on, the church is trying to answer this question. And uh, one of the emperors that becomes favorable to the Christian witness is Constantine. Now, there are a lot, there's a lot of myth around why Constantine becomes favorable to Christian witness. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but th the fact is he does. He becomes favorable to Christian witness. And at that moment, the church begins to have to ask themselves a question. Some of its leaders and writers and pastors ask it very self-critically and some don't. And uh, you have uh, this debate that happens between what historians have called the Church of Power and the Church of Glory. Church of Glory being a church that is very comfortable using the political apparatuses of the state to advance the church's agenda, um, and maybe they're too comfortable with the privileges that the state affords, and they like it. That's the Church of uh, Glory. Uh, the Church of Power is the church that uh, it's a little bit more self-critical and self-aware in its approach and its relation to the state. And they 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 prefer to exist on the margins or among the minority of society. They, they're not clamoring for political power. And if you kind of trace this, and this is not unique to me, church historians have made use of this distinction for some time, church of power and church of glory, you can kind of see how different religious expressions um, either embrace that or or are critical about it. Like even in the Reformation, you're going to have Luther uh, and this, uh, be very comfortable with the state church. You're gonna have very, you're gonna have Calvin uh, and the reformers basically build communities around the Reformed Church, uh, and then you're gonna have the Anabaptist tradition that's going to be very critical about state power and uh, about the privileges that the state may or may not afford. Um, and so this continues to mutate and mutate until you get to America, where its mutation crescendos because of our representation form of government. Now people have common people, at least purportedly, obviously we know that common in the early foundation of America meant white and male and landowner, but you could have common people who could now be an active part of the governing of the country. It's just a different form of governance. And in the same way that America's political life was unique and new, it had unique and new impact on the church's relationship to the state. And so one of the principal impacts of that was that churches began to see that political power was accessible 
which in other environments, whether it had been a state church or not, it was more inaccessible than it was now in America. So now they know, oh, well, these political apparatuses and political privileges are accessible and they're wieldable in a way that is unique. Um, and America, and I'll just say this, the fundamental failure of the church in America at that moment is there was not a strong enough self-critical political philosophy that emerged among American religious life to handle the new Amer- the new American political system. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like there isn't a, like the, one of the fundamental discipleship failures of the Christian in America is that we did not build out a political philosophy that was adaptive enough, creative enough, and strong enough for a new political system. Right. And so America's religious life, America's denominational life, American Christian leadership has had a variety of approaches to this issue, but nine times out of 10, if political power is an option, they'll take it. Right regardless of what their political philosophy might be. Right. And so uh, because the political system was new, because religious life was new in a new world, because of the newness of it all, frankly, we just have not had the time to adapt the political philosophy that worked for Roman Catholic society right. or for Lutheran society or for the Reformed society. And to this day, a lot of America, a lot of Christian political philosophy will still rely on the deliverances of Roman Catholic political philosophers, right. Anglican political philosophers, Lutheran political philosophers, Reformed political philosophers, Anabaptist political philosophers, and it is still not working. Right. And the reason for it is because none of those systems are the American political system. That's a that's really really good. So we there's there are a lot of great thinkers who are telling the story. Right. There's a lot of great writers who are helping us capture the history. There's even a lot of great writers that are trying to synthesize political philosophy from the continent or political philosophy from the ancient Near East or political philosophy from the Isles and try to adapt it for faithful improvisation in America today. Right. But we have not built out, and we certainly have not discipled our people in a way where they could meaningfully communicate what is a Christian's relationship to the American political system. That's really fascinating. And where it, I think, um, where it leaves us sounds a lot like uh, that history of denominationalism itself, which is just experimenting, dissenting views, sometimes holding hands with power, sometimes rejecting it, sometimes doing really great things, sometimes doing really horrible things. It's a complicated, complex, and nuanced Mm -hmm. uh, issue. Yeah. Well, you even have expressions of how weird this was in American historical political life. Like when JFK is running for president, people are terrified of having a Catholic president. Right. Because they're like, well, if the Pope calls him, He's gonna. He's got to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, the Pope's the vicar of Christ. Yeah, like he's like he can't say no to the Pope. I mean, that's a that is a that is a part of the political imagination of America at that time. Right. People are running in opposition to JFK, going, "Well, what about the Pope?" Right. That's sixty years ago. Right. You know, if so, it's like. It's this weird moment, uh, and we've never really progressed past this point of being able to go. Well, hold on, just because, like, because Rome has a very thorough view of political philosophy. Yes. Yeah, right? I mean, just go to Italy and ask Italians about the Roman Catholic Church, and they'll tell you, right? The Vatican operates as a political entity. Right. Self-consciously so. Yes. Okay? So they have a very well-developed political philosophy that they have exported uh, effectively throughout the world. But in America, 
it's a little bit trickier. Yeah. Go look at Catholic life in South America. Go look at Catholic Catholic life in uh, on the continent. Go look at Catholic life in Southern Europe, and you are going to find it is very different than Catholic life in America. Right. And that presents unique challenges. The same is true for every religious denomination and tradition. Yeah, yeah. Even what you just said, you know, you pointed to that example. But I remember even within corners of the evangelical church at the time when Romney ran. Oh, yeah. Right? There was plenty of people issuing similar, you know, fears that they had with sure. JFK, but towards the Mormon church. Absolutely. You know, it's inter- It's just so interesting. So it's like, we know that we live in a world, we live in a country where there are people who think differently from us. Yes. Who are from different religious traditions from us. Um, we're not sure, though, whether or not we want them or we're okay with them being a president. Yeah. Or being in political office. Right. Right? Even even the American consciousness over... Like, Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. Right. And has had incredible exposure in the global West for decades now. Okay? Um, but anytime there is a, a person who is a Muslim running for political office... It is a significant talking point in some parts of conservative and Christian spaces of like, can we vote for a Muslim for right. political office? Right. Now, I'm not telling you y- yes or no. I'm not telling you who you should vote for, who you shouldn't vote for. What I'm saying is this. Nobody denies we live in a country where there are Muslims. Right. Nobody denies we live in a country where there should be accurate rep- – uh, like uh, we have a representative form of government. Right. Nobody lives in a country where they don't believe that – uh, people who think differently from them can't be in political office. Right. But people of religious faith go, is this okay? Right. What will happen? Right. What could happen? Right. So there is not a real robust political philosophy on offer. Do you think that's one of the reasons, and this could be a dicey topic, but I think it is interesting. Do you think that was one of the reasons that once, once sort of pockets of evangelicalism or large portions, I should say, of the evangelical church decided Trump was their man. They tried to baptize him so quickly. Well, yeah, I mean, because again, if you're thinking through just the way that the church relates to society, right? um, evangelicalism, uh, and again, we're using evangelicalism, but it is a it, it, it's a freight train of a word right. that now yeah. is the, it, it has a hundred cars behind it, some of which are related to it intrinsically and some of which are not. Right. So if we think about the historical roots of evangelicalism, we're thinking about it as a theological movement really birthed out of the Great Awakenings. Right. This is David Bebington, who is probably the chief scholar of evangelicalism as a movement. He would say it has four kind of aspects to it, and all of those are moral and theological, except for the activist strain, which is, we could say that has some political connotations as well. And that's been there from the beginning. But when we think about evangelicalism now, when somebody hears this podcast and hears evangelicalism, they're thinking about Christians who are very concerned about political activism. Right. Okay. That's what they're thinking. And most surveys now are demonstrating that evangelicalism is more of a political and social word than a theological word. You'll get somebody who answers all of the right questions uh, as a quote unquote evangelical on the social survey, but on the theological survey, they flunk it. Right. It's not a theological movement any longer. It's a political one. Right. But when we think about um, 2016 um, and 2020, for that matter. Um, what we what we were quick to see was that evangelicalism picked their guy. In contrast with uh, the opposite, the alternative, right? Um, and because evangelicalism has had a very, they are they want political privileges, at least what we might call contemporary evangelicalism. They want political privileges. 
uh, they are going to vote for the person who affords them the most amount of political privileges. And Donald Trump was very, very clear, and he played the three-note chord of evangelical political philosophy very easily. Fear, assurances, and strong men. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is like, (laughs) you want to hit evangelicalism's moral palette? Fear. Hey, look at the alternative. It's bad. Mm -hmm. Less political privileges. Fear. Assurances. I will protect you. Why? Because I'm a strong man. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. that is. I'm not saying that's the roots of evangelicalism. It's not. Right. That is what we currently have as the dominant mutation of evangelicalism in America. That's the three notes of its moral palette. Isn't it even interesting that not not so? This may have felt like a little bit of an aside, but I want to point something out. We've been talking about something called evangelicalism for a minute. Evangelicalism is not a denomination. No. And I so where I want to land the plane because ne- the the next episode is going to be so where are we going? Sure. Um but I I want to land the it's plane. It's not good, I'll tell you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just okay. A teaser. Cliffhanger. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. So but here's where we are, right? We just describe something and and then we kind of describe some of the, you know, 30,000 foot foot view changes that are going on. Mm-hmm. But here's what's interesting, and I think this is more recent, I would call it. It's, it's you know, you could go to the 70s, but I would say in the last 20 years, you know, um, and, and maybe that's just because that's when I feel like I'm intellectually involved, but sure. I could be wrong. But people stopped saying, if somebody said, what do you believe? People stopped saying, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a Methodist. People stopped saying I'm Presbyterian. They started saying I'm Christian. I'm evangelical. Uh, the parachurch movement became huge, right? So yep. you, people are like, I don't want to operate within a de- denomination. I want to. I don't even want to operate within sort of local churches. I want to do this thing outside the church yep. in this parachurch space, which is which is a strange phenomenon in itself. You have this rise of sort of mere Christianity. You have things like TGC, which I per- personally there's there, I'm sure there's problems, but like I love I I like the Gospel sure. Coalition. I like what they're doing, right? Um, you have these movements together for the gospel. All these different things if you're just looking really recent history, and they don't seem to be strongly tied with denominations. <laughs> yeah. So you have this big movement of people kind of saying, uh, the way we want to really associate is again around fundamental beliefs, yep. <laughs> around our ability to cooperate to spread the gospel. And for some reason, we don't see denominations as the way to do that anymore. These guys may have been involved in their denominations, but it seems like they spent a lot of their time not going, <laughs> I want to strengthen the PCA. I want to strengthen Southern Baptist. I want to you know, expand our reach. Instead, they're going, ah, I'm going to go hang out with these guys who I love. And we, even though he's a Presbyterian, and even though he's uh, you know, whatever an Anglican, because you have the Anglican resurgence. Sure. We're we can all kind of hang out, and and we actually share more fellowship in some ways than we do in in inside of our denomination. So it's a strange thing. I'm just saying it's a strange phenomenon that um we have to come up with different categories outside yeah. denominationalism, and I think that probably points to some of the failure, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, both failure and opportunity. Yes, yes. Yeah, because yeah, uh, evangelical evangelicalism um, in spirit as a movement has tried to bind people together to do something that they could not do on their own, right. even within their own denomination. The problem with it is that oftentimes it's aimed at a kind of uh, culture war that has not proven to be effective long-term for the formation of its own people. 
So it's evangelicalism has succeeded significantly as a movement of people across denominations and religious expressions united in some moral things to affect change. The question is whether or not that change has been congruent with scripture. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point, and it's something I want to tackle next time. I want to land the plane there because we've been talking for a long time. I think I want to bring some clarity to where we are at the start of the next episode and then talk about where we're going. So, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us for one more. Uh, guys, please uh, come back uh, and listen again because I think um, the next part of this conversation is really important. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett and produced by David Roark. If you like what you heard, please give us a great review where you listen to the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram. Thanks and God bless. <laughs>